Hey everyone, welcome back to Zachcast. This is Chad Janicek. I'm here with Patrick Lawler. How you doing, Pat? I'm good, Chad. How are you doing today? Doing all right. It is uh, a different format for today's episode. We're doing a round robin, so I brought a couple of topics. I think that Patrick, you finally picked some topics this morning, so I haven't really had a great amount of time to look over them, and hopefully, I'll have something interesting to say. But I, I will be prepared to talk about my topics by the time we get to them. How about that? <laughs> Perfect. Okay, so. Quick round robin. Here we go. Number one, we'll jump right in. If you work for a municipality that has Airbnb hosts or short-term rentals, you probably have been frustrated by a lack of data, by concerns over whether uh, your hosts are paying the proper um, you know, hotel taxes, whether they're in compliance with that, whatever regulations that you might have. Airbnb last week launched a pilot program called City Portal. So they launched it in 15 cities across the world. And Their stated goal is to provide cities, municipalities, and tourism agencies with better access to the listings so that they can comply with local ordinances and laws and things like that. So these cities are provided with a dedicated Airbnb staffer and their very own dashboard where they can see all the hosts, they can see where they're operating, what properties are being rented, how much revenue is being generated, where guests are coming from, things like that. Uh, So in the past, or actually right now, uh, if you want information like this, you have to subscribe to one of these scraping services. So these, there are websites that will scrape listings off of Airbnb and Verbo and things like that. And then they'll run some statistical estimates about how much revenue is being generated, how, uh, how frequently the, these locations are actually booked, like what their occupancy rate is. Um, the data is their estimates, right? So you kind of have to take them with whatever grain of salt uh, is necessary. But yeah, with Airbnb actually providing first-class access to the data, first-party access to the data, that could could change quite a bit. Uh, you know, look, uh, the big question is, is why is this taking so long? Uh, you know, cities have been fighting with Airbnb over this issue now for quite a long time. The information is really hard to come by. Uh, some cities have sued Airbnb to get some special agreements and arrangements uh, to get their taxation directly from them. But ultimately, I think it's too slow. I think we need to move faster. And I don't see why we can't open this up to more cities quickly. That's, that's my, my big statement here. Um, I think they're taking a better approach. You know, we, I, I, think, I think they're maybe being a better player than Uber was when Uber came into the market. You know, Uber fought every governmental entity that was out there. Every city got into it with Uber. Um, and, and the reality is, is that Airbnb is getting to that point now where cities are realizing just how much revenue they're losing. We have a couple of cities uh, in the state of Texas that have implemented their own ordinances that, that we know of personally. Fredericksburg, Texas wine country. My wife and I like to go there quite a bit. Uh, they've implemented it. They, I believe they've gotten some cooperation from Airbnb, but it's still like putting together you know a thousand piece puzzle. And College Station has just done the same thing. Uh, I heard it's putting one, like it's it's like putting one of those invisible puzzles together. <laughs> it is right. Uh, one city manager described it to me as playing whack-a-mole, right? Literally. So if if you do figure out that somebody's not paying you hotel motel tax, they just take their listing off and they rename it as something else with the same pictures, right? So it just it it literally is like you hit it and it pops up somewhere else. Um, and and this will help that. I just don't understand why it's taken Airbnb so long to do it. And why they're only rolling it out to a couple of test cities at this point when it's just addresses. All the cities need are the addresses. They don't need any of the other information. 
just the addresses. The rest of it they can figure out on their own. Well, I think that the some of the information is potentially quite helpful, especially for tourism agencies, like where are guests coming from. Correct. Um, you know, are they are they local? Are they coming internationally? To take the second part of your comment, why are they rolling it out slowly? I mean, it's a pilot program. You know, you want to work out kinks before you open it up to every city in the entire world. Uh, so to me, that kind of makes sense. You know, let's start slow, work out any bugs, make sure that we have the proper policies in place to give access to the city specifically, because I mean, you don't want, they don't want the actual addresses just floating around everywhere. That's why they don't provide them until you, until you actually book. Um, but the question of why did it take so long? It's probably a good question to ask. Um, I think, you <laughs> right. know, my guess is that this is ultimately being done because they would like to show a good faith effort that you don't have to overregulate uh, or negotiate a separate agreement with them like a lot of cities have. They have they have quite a few agreements with cities across the country where Airbnb is the entity that collects hotel taxes and remits to the cities or localities. Um, and everywhere else, the the actual host is responsible for doing that, right? So rather than get in a situation where they have to negotiate these agreements with everyone, they can just kind of automate the process, provide this portal, and let cities do their own work. So, I mean, in terms of the best option for them, obviously, this is it. Well, uh, or this is like in the right direction. Let's, but yeah, let's, not, let's not let Airbnb off the hook, right? The reality is, is they looked at this and they tried to take an Uber approach, which was, we're just going to go do what we want to do and we'll fight it if we have to fight it, right? So the problem with that is, is with Uber, you were dealing with regulation, not necessarily taxation. You're dealing with regulation that was written because of special interest of, say, like cabbie unions and yellow cab and, and that type of stuff, right? With Airbnb, you're talking about actual required taxation by law in the state of Texas, okay? They were trying to dodge taxation and they were allowing their host to dodge taxation just by putting a statement on a website that says, don't forget, you may have local taxes. I'm sorry. I believe the attorney general of Texas should have sued Airbnb. I think there should be money that goes back to these localities. We should not let them off the hook. And I think this is Airbnb's way of understanding they're going to get caught. So they might as well try to get ahead of it. My two cents. So obviously, it's, there's a difference in scale, but let's say that you had an application that allowed you to, to host garage sales on a very regular basis, mm -hmm. right? So if you host enough garage sales in Texas, you have to collect sales tax on your proceeds. Mm -hmm. So would we be in the same situation? Like obviously, it's not going to be the same scale, but in principle, would you have the same objections? It's different because the actual purchase is not taking place on the website, right? The purchase is taking place. It's, it's the same argument with Amazon, right? Amazon didn't want to collect sales taxes for a long time, but the reality is the purchase was being done through Amazon, okay? When you have a garage sale, you're just listing a garage sale on a website. People are coming and paying you cash at the location. There's no control mechanism for Airbnb or for Amazon at that point. So the difference here is, is that Airbnb knew that their hosts were avoiding it. They were complicit in the illegal act. That was a very technical term for me. It's too early complicit. in the morning terms of complicit. <laughs> so, you have low standards, my friend. I've got very low standards. <laughs> okay. Item number two, defunding the police. 
So we wrote about uh, the particular case of the city of Austin in our August newsletter. If you are interested, you can go take a look at that. I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, but the city of Austin actually proposed substantial cuts on paper to their police department. And this invited some backlash with the governor's office, which have you even heard any follow up on that, Patrick? No, I mean, it's it's look at the end of the day, it's it's politics in Texas, right? It it was an excellent campaign platform, and Abbott did what Abbott has always done, and he's taken that platform and stood on it, and he's doing a pretty good job with it. But no, there's been no follow up to this, and frankly, our legislative session is going to be so short. I don't think you're going to see much come out of it, anyways. Okay, so, so brief recap on what happened: the city of Austin proposed like a thirty percent cut to their police department. Some of those were reducing future fire or police academies and things like that for the upcoming year that were already planned. Um, uh, about 17 percentage points of the cut, I don't know, 17 percentage points of 30, uh, so a little over half, was reallocating operations outside of the police department. So moving dispatch, uh, moving internal investigations and things like that, uh, and a handful of other services that the police department was providing, still doing those things, but not in the police department. So it's a net reduction to the police budget, but not to the operations. And then about a third of those cuts were legitimate cuts to uh, you know, we're not going to be doing these particular services anymore. We're going to reallocate that money to a different social service. And so the governor came out and said that any he's going to propose a plan where any city who defunds the police is going to have their property taxes capped. So, <laughs> it's, so there's all kinds of local control issues and things like that that we talked about in our newsletter, um, you know, not evaluating on the merits, the actual cuts that the city of Austin made, because that's that's their decision to make, right? They get to live with the ramifications of it. But uh, City Lab looked at 34 of the top 50 largest cities across the country. I looked at their FY21 budgets, which in most cases uh, have just recently now been approved, and kind of evaluated how they handled their police funding. Because obviously, with with the COVID, uh, the economic impacts of COVID, uh, strapping cities across the country, and with the the protests and the discussions of policing. Uh, you know, if a city was ever going to take advantage of an opportunity to reevaluate their police budget, this is going to be one of the best that they'll have. So City Lab kind of looked at what are cities actually doing. And again, they looked at 34 of the top 50 cities. They found that 14 had net decreases in their police budgets. Obviously, Austin led the way with their 30% reduction. Uh, you had New York City, you had Vegas, Arlington, Virginia, Portland, D.C., Etc. You can we'll link to the article in the show notes so you can look at the full list. Um, Tulsa was pretty much flat, so it was uh, it may have actually been thirteen. There were two cities that had a net reduction in police while their general budgets increased, and those were Boston and L.A. But one thing I found interesting was that there were actually nine cities on this group that had uh, increases in their police department budgets, but a net decrease in their general budget as a whole. Uh, cities like Atlanta, Memphis, Houston, Charlotte, Raleigh, Albuquerque, uh, and Oakland, just as a few examples, they re they increased their police budgets this year, but reduced general fund as a whole. Uh, I just kind of found that interesting. That you know, it's it's not uncommon. We're, I did budget for over a decade. You know, you worked <laughs> in city management. It's not uncommon during economic economically difficult times to see the general fund budget contract. But the police and fire budgets either stay flat or, or grow. The bigger reason certainly is contract at a lower rate. But yeah, the, the big reason is yeah. a lot of these bigger cities in particular have uh, they have union agreements or collective bargaining 
where a lot of these things are already decided. They don't have a whole lot of discretion while these agreements are in place. They can't address them until they start to renegotiate. Yeah. I mean, you know, look, I, I, I think the national trend of what people think is happening with defunding police departments is not correct. I think that's what this Bloomberg article at least comes out in a small sample size that they've got. You know, look, there's 20 cities on this list that are increasing police funding. Some of those cities obviously are increasing police funding while their general fund budgets are decreasing. Um, there have been quite a few. Um, yeah, the defund the police argument at the local level really hasn't been a blue and red issue. You've got a lot of large cities like Houston who came out really early and said, uh, you know, we're going to push to make sure that police funding stays strong. Uh, all that being said, it is interesting that Austin leads on this list, right? A 32 plus percent decrease is significant, even with the reallocations. Uh, but this is a good article. It's going to be in the show notes. I think you ought to take a look at this. Um, and and the reality is any city manager will admit quietly behind the scenes that in periods of economic retraction, you do look at public safety for the opportunity to make reductions because it's very difficult to ever make reductions in public safety because it's it's difficult to do that politically. It's it's hard for your council members to do that. Um, it's unfortunate that a lot of these conversations are being had within the kind of the national narrative um, and, and not really a professional conversation is being had within the city management and budget departments and, and with their police chiefs and department directors. So I think everybody would admit there's probably room to make changes, you know, but it's, it's an interesting article. So one, one more point about the article. They mentioned that since 1977, in inflation-adjusted dollars, police funding has nearly tripled which is kind of crazy when you consider that the annual number of violent crimes has only gone up by about 20% and population has gone up by about 50% in that time. But I think that if you were to ask most city managers and probably most police chiefs sort of off the record, they would agree that at the very least, there is probably some reallocation of priorities within police departments that could benefit their communities as a whole. Um, But Yes, some of the nuance kind of gets lost, like you said, in the national narrative um, about whether, you know, back the blue or defund the police. Like there's these these polar opposites uh, from the political narrative that don't have a, as much connection to the reality on the ground. And if we, if we could have a little bit more nuanced and sensible conversations, I think we could probably reach uh, some more common ground on those topics. Okay, number three, your first one, let's go. All right, here we go. So my first story, given to chat about 45 minutes ago. (laughs) A little Uh, bit longer because this is actually take two. I forgot to hit record. The first one, that that is right. Yeah. So uh, San Antonio billionaire wants to test every student in the city for COVID-19. Not in the city of San Antonio yet. Uh, They're going to do a pilot program. But uh, Graham Weston, who is the CEO... Why aren't they just doing the whole thing? Just do the whole... We're we're gonna get to that. Graham Weston. Oh, so not, the, now you're okay with pilot programs, though. Oh my gracious! <laughs> Here we go. Now I'm okay with a pilot program. He is the CEO uh, or the former uh, CEO of Rackspace Technology, uh, which if anybody knows what Rackspace is, it's basically like a server management company, right? Um, so he is looking at doing and piloting through his nonprofit called Community Labs. Um, a mass testing at Somerset Independent School District. Um, 
they are starting this or they actually started it this uh, last Wednesday. Uh, and so he hopes to expand the facility uh, to test every student in San Antonio ISD in the coming months. So uh, basically what they're doing is they're doing PCR tests, uh, which, which are considered the gold standard test for COVID. And this is their ability to get kids back in school and to keep the economic engine of education going. Very important that people understand that education is, is important, not because they're babysitters, but because it slows our economy when kids don't go to school, right? It also hurts us from an educational standpoint, lots of different issues. And he's doing this. I thought this article was interesting because I sit on uh, like the COVID task force in Parker County. And we have already done something similar. Now he's doing mass testing, which means they're testing these kids. Um, every student and every staffer every week is, or once a week is what they're doing. But what happened in Parker County is an interesting story. It's a little outside of this. We actually are the hospital district in Parker County. Um, they purchased a quick test, PCR swab, quick test, their 15 minute test. So they are the gold standard test, but they come back in 15 minutes rather than two days or a day. And they have put those in every public school in Parker County, in the nurse's office. They put these things called med pods in there. So they can test in every school in Parker County for strep, flu, or COVID that occurs. Now, the reason that's important is because our kids have been in school now. We're on week seven in Parker County for all of our kids being back in school. And we have not closed a campus in Parker County. And I personally believe the main reason for that is, is because when a kid tests or gets sick and they go to the nurse's office, we're not waiting two or three days to quarantine all of the close contacts for that kid. We know within 15 minutes and all those close contacts are then sent home, right? So we've done a really good job of protecting it. We've had a couple of outbreaks of like two or three cases in individual campuses and schools, um, but it's been a very controlled environment. Whereas if you look at Tarrant County, which is the more populous county adjacent to us, they do not have this system of testing set up and they are seeing large swaths of students in schools that have come back, you know, 20 to 30 positives at a time, hundreds of kids on quarantine. And we just haven't seen that in Parker County. And most of the folks here locally in Parker County attest that to the quick tests that have been placed in schools. So I, I think ultimately we have to ask ourselves the question as Americans, if we know how to deal with COVID from a testing standpoint, and we know how to keep people away from other people to spread COVID, why as Americans have we not done that yet? Why is our in ingenuity not stepped up to make sure that that is done? Right? Big question. What are your thoughts? Uh, one question. Are the kids wearing masks in class? Yes, required. Okay. So uh, just yep. for a sense of scale, a quick Google search showed that Somerset ISD has 4,156 students. So at $35 a test, that's about $150,000 a week just to test the students, not alone, let alone the staffers. Um, so, I mean, you're talking about several million dollars a year for these weekly tests. But look, I'm a fan of private action. So I don't have a problem if uh, someone who can afford it wants to step up and, and try to help these kids get back into school. I think that, um, I mean, I've taken online courses before. It was kind of a new thing when we were in college. I'm sure you have too. When you're in college and you're kind of motivated to uh, to get your degree so that you can you know get out into your career, 
it's a it's one thing to be able to focus on an online course and deal with the difficulties of online learning versus in class learning. Um, my five year old has been doing museum school this year. He starts kindergarten next year, so this year, you know, he's still in in uh, pre K, whatever. Uh, but we've been taking him to museum school, but the first four weeks have been remote. So he's got like a 45 minute Zoom session with like seven or eight other kids. And it's a disaster. <laughs> like he's learning stuff, <laughs> but it is just difficult to get it, all of them to hold their attention for that 45 minutes, even though they have songs they're singing and, you know, they're learning things and they have crafts and activities that they're doing. Um, I can't imagine having to do that for actual school for an entire day for a whole year and and actually getting as much out of it as you would under traditional circumstances. So, I mean, if this is what it takes to get kids safely back in school, I don't have a problem with it. Well, I mean, one of the issues with online learning for me when I was in college was I couldn't interrupt the professor and be, you know, be that guy. Which is really difficult had, for you, huh? Really, really difficult you start for me. mashing yeah, your keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> I, that is not correct. Um, but you know, look, I mean, it's, it's incredibly difficult to online learn. You know, we did it for three or four months or two months, uh, at the end of last year. It's just hard, especially with elementary age kids. It's incredibly tough. So yeah, I mean, kids need to be back in school. I just, I just think we have some ingenuity as Americans that we could do this and be successful at it, get our kids back in school and get our economy back on track by doing some things that are responsible. But we've lost a little bit of that, um, like that American spark to get that. I don't know if that's because a lot of manufacturing has moved overseas. And so we don't have the ability to get that moving like we used to. I mean, I that's know. a big I mean, you saw lots of manufacturing shift to masks and hand cleaners and stuff like that when the demand required it, right? Correct. Free flow of capital is yeah. going to move to the most efficient, <laughs> the most efficient means or uses of it. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. I, I think it's also difficult to, we talked about, you know, polarization with the defunding the police. I think, unfortunately, the response to and just the entire environment around COVID um, is more political than is probably helpful. Um, and it's difficult to know what's true. I mean, I, I've asked you to watch Social Dilemma. Um, it's the new Netflix documentary, and we don't have to jump onto that. But it, it talks a lot about how um, the bubbles that we kind of create in our social media and the way that news travels through that and different types of news travels through different groups of people. And so we're not all getting the same information and we all have different uh, sort of things that are prioritized from a news standpoint. And so it, it does make it difficult to have sort of a cohesive response, whether that's through private action or through what y'all are doing in Parker County with, with uh, you know, high levels of testing and, and things like that. But I, you know, it's, it's, it's just an interesting topic, but to lighten the mood a little bit, national treasure, Mike Leach. Okay. So we just had a weekend where Mike Leach obviously has moved to the SEC. Can you, which is probably the, for our people who aren't avid college football fans, you want to introduce who he even is. Okay. So Mike Leach is, uh, one of the pioneers of, of the, like the air raid spread offense, right? Uh, he was a Texas Tech coach for a long time. There was a little controversy there. We won't dig into that. But uh, he left Texas Tech, went to Washington State. Um, he was at Washington State for uh, quite a long time. And then he was just hired this year, the best coaching hire of the year. 
at Mississippi State. But, He's now a bulldog. So he was like the pioneer of air raid, but his like his coaching tree includes like Mike Gundy, um, oh. Cliff Kingsbury, uh, Lincoln Riley, right? Like all of these people with prolific mm-hmm. offenses. Like those are all Mike yes. Mike Leach descendants. Yeah. So and and he is a um, he's a goofball. Like it, I mean, if if you were to describe him, you would describe him as just goofy. He's just he's silly. He's goofy. He's got a very dry sense of humor, and he just has a lot of fun with everybody. But they released a video the day after they beat LSU of a wagon with a band on it with Mike Leach in front of it leading the wagon. Okay. This thing was well produced. It was put out like the next morning after the win over LSU. It was clear as day that Mike Leach had that video made before he beat LSU, right? (laughs) Just an amazing Mike Leach fashion. The press conferences that he does at any school that he's ever been to, but especially especially at Mississippi State, the the press conferences have just been, uh, I mean, they are, they're gold, pure gold. and this week, a New York Times reporter asked him why he was inconsistent in wearing his mask, right? And instead of answering the question, Mike Leach starts to ask the New York Times reporter about how he wears his mask and what type of mask he was wearing, as in the reporter, what type of mask was the reporter wearing during the game? And also, does he notice that after he wears his mask for a little while, it starts to stink. And if you think about it, that's got to be your bad breath. That's your bad breath that smells in that mask. Like, where does that come from? He just, he rolls down that road. And I just, I just think in today's world, Mike Leach brings us so much humility and humor and, and, and just, uh, you know, he, he brings a lot to the show. So your thoughts on Mike Leach there. So uh, it's important to note that, his response was not antagonistic. Not at all. So his response was, I try to keep it up, but I talk a lot. I'm calling plays. It falls down. It's one of those neck wraps, right? So it doesn't stay up all the time. And sometimes I'll pull it down and forget. You know, I'm preoccupied. He calls it a neck sock, a neck by sock. the way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, and he was asking for advice. Like, what do you do, Mr. Reporter, to keep uh-huh. your mask up? And you know, how do you handle that? And it was, it was lighthearted. And, and yeah, it was... It's what you would expect from Mike Leach. Um, I, I do have a serious question for you, though. Quick programming note. It is at this precise moment that our conversation totally derails into just razzing each other about college football. So if you don't care about college football or rivalries or things like that, feel free to turn it off. It's not going to hurt our feelings. Otherwise, enjoy. Everyone probably at this point knows you are an Aggie fan, Texas A&M. Yes. Struggle to get by Vandy this week. Uh, struggle's a hard word. Did you have like... I felt like we controlled... like 75 yards of offense in the first half, seven points. But I felt like we, can, we controlled the entire game. Okay. Uh, uh, there was never a point in that game where I thought... I, there was never a point in that game like Texas had in their game where I thought, wow, we may lose this game. I never thought that. You clearly had those thoughts. I have the text messages to back them up. Well, yeah, we were down by 15 with three minutes to go. <laughs> it's kind of hard not to have those <laughs> thoughts. But my question is, you have Alabama, then you have what, Florida? Uh, yeah. Okay, so you're, you're going to get trounced by Alabama this week. 
You're probably going to get beat by Florida. Is that is that at home or is that in Florida? I'm looking at it. We play Alabama this weekend in Tuscaloosa. In Tuscaloosa, then Florida comes to Texas A&M. They come to College Station, and then we're uh, we see Mike Leach at Mississippi oh. State on ten. So my question is. Do you think that you'll still view him as a national treasure after that game? I, I will. Look, uh, Mike Leach is just a, he, as a, as just a coach, a football coach, a guy. Like, you want to play for Mike Leach. I mean, come on. Some people didn't. That's the, why the guy, he's not at Tech anymore. So, <laughs> if you know the story at Tech, he apparently locked somebody in a closet. I, I feel like that's a stretch to say he locked somebody in a closet. But, um, they didn't feel good, and he said, you go sit in the closet, and they did. Uh, so, but all that being said, yeah, I'm, I, I'm, I'm not going to like him on the day of, but I certainly am still going to watch his press conferences like I do every week. They're amazing. But Adam's schedule, man, come on. Number two, Alabama. Number three, Florida. Number 16, Mississippi State. Well, the problem that y'all have That's, is that y'all have historically struggled against those Mississippi schools, regardless of how good they actually are. Like, this is correct, your... Yeah. Tenth year in the SEC, ninth year. This is our ninth year. Might be the eighth year. Yeah, because my bet was. I think it's the eighth year because our bet was last year. year and you lost that one, and then I lost it too. That's correct. I didn't. And you lost it too. I doubled you up double last on Texas. Yeah. Either way. Yeah. Uh, so, so y'all have <laughs> already have a history of struggling with those Mississippi schools, but now you throw a Mike Leach on there. It's going to be a. It'll be a fun day, I think, for me. I don't like to talk trash before these games because. I feel like there's going to be something that comes back on me, but I feel pretty confident in saying that the next three weeks of your schedule is going to be kind of brutal. Oh, I think it's absolutely going to be brutal. But what's exciting for me in the SEC with Mike Leach is, is that he's going to win games and he's going to win some decisive games like LSU. I'd be really worried if I was Alabama. I'd, I'd be very, very concerned if I'm Alabama. Well, you look at, so uh, look at the history of that sort of spread offense in the SEC. When A&M mm-hmm. first joined in 2012 or whatever, you had Johnny Football, you ran an up-tempo spread offense, you beat Alabama, he won the Heisman. Joe Burrow just destroyed the SEC last year with a sort Correct. of a spread up-tempo offense. And then in his first game, Mike Leach absolutely annihilates the single-game passing record for the SEC. Yes. Now, his yeah, biggest problem one. is he, doesn't have, he never has a defense. So mm-hmm. can that hold up? You know, over maybe it can hold up over a short schedule this year. Well, I think the difference is he's in the SEC now, right? So he's going to be able to recruit great defensive players. He's going to be able to recruit a great defensive coach. So he's got a better chance at it in the SEC than he does, you know, say in the Big 12 or in the pack. No offense to the Texas 12 people, but y'all's recruitment has been a little lackluster lately. Chad, you have any comments? There's, All I got to say is that Texas has a pretty strong showing right now, representation in the NFL, which is, I think they, is I mean, far superior to the way that we've recruited and developed. If you look at how we have recruited and developed over the past 10 years, I don't think that you would expect to see the caliber of players that we, that we have put into the NFL. Okay. I mean this from a football terminology standpoint, but for the last couple of years, really for the last like five years, Texas has been a soft football team. Oh yeah. Well, Charlie Strong was going to put yeah, the T I mean, back in Texas. <laughs> well i mean you got you got a herman who can barely swing a sledgehammer these days so you know look at the end of the day i think texas has got some good talent but man they're just not they just like there's no smash mouth to anything they do on the football field 
And to come out and have that performance against Texas Tech, even though they got the win, uh, because frankly, I, I, I'm going to give some props to Texas. Y'all's quarterback is good. Yeah, he's good. I'll say not. I mean, not to like digress totally into college football, but the the times when we actually do play strong, like strong defense and solid football, is when we play outside of uh, the Big Twelve, like Georgia, yeah, uh, Utah last year in the bowl games. Now Maryland excluded because. <laughs> We've had some issues with them in the last three years, but uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it's. I think there's something just different about playing inside the Big Twelve with those teams and those types of offenses versus. I mean, and truthfully, uh, the SEC teams struggle with that kind of offense too. So they they do. I mean, so you know, it's just look. Uh, I'm glad to get some normality back. College football being on television is a little bit normal. It's weird that I don't get to go to College Station um, and see a game. You know, I think there's like 20,000 fans in a stand. You, to be fair, you guys generally attend at least one or two Texas games a year. Quite a few Baylor games, right? Because your wife is a Baylor mm-hmm. alum. Um, and so it, it is a little weird in the fall to like not go to a college football game. For me, if you're a Texan, it's kind of in the blood. Yeah, absolutely. So, I don't know. Yeah. I'll, I'll just wrap this up, this part of the conversation up by saying everything about this season, it's great to have football back. But everything about this season is, I think, just going to be so crazy that you can't put much stock into it. And the best option that we have is just to enjoy it and don't take it too seriously. Kind of like Mike Leach. (laughs) Kind of like Mike Leach. Uh, Before we let everything go, I do need to make one mention. So Chad and I are, obviously this is a podcast, so you're just just hearing us, but we're looking at each other on video because we're not podcasting in the same room. I'm wearing an Astros shirt. This was not planned. He's wearing a Rangers shirt. How do you feel about your Rangers season there, Chad? Um, I feel like it is. It's over. <laughs> How's that? You're gonna get the. You're gonna get the number one draft pick, though, right? Like, don't y'all have the first pick in the uh, the draft we'll next need year? More than one draft pick. I think what we need is a new GM. <laughs> I I would be on the fire John Daniels train in a heartbeat. I've been there for a couple of years, so. Uh, it's weird for me. I'm an Astros fan because I'm from Houston, but my kids love the Rangers uh, because that's the team we can go watch uh, when in, in non-COVID years. So uh, one last question before we get off. How in the world after that performance against Texas Tech is Texas still ranked number nine? Uh, well, Explain you had Oklahoma, which can I just say, I, I don't want to offend any listeners, but I am a Longhorn through and through my entire life. I was born, I was raised in Austin. So I have been a Longhorn fan my entire life. My five-year-old refers to Oklahoma as OU sucks. <laughs> that is their name <laughs> to him. So no offense. It's all in good fun. It's just a rivalry. Um, but uh, how, so you had a lot of upsets this week. Oklahoma lost to Kansas State. You, you did have a You had a lot of uh, LSU lost to Mississippi State. So we actually dropped from eight to nine. So would you admit that there is a little bias towards the Longhorns. What's A&M still ranked? Like if they, A&M still ranked. No, yeah. what did you drop to? I think we're, because you were 10. I think we're 16. I think we're 16. Hold on. Let me look. No, we're 13. So we dropped and you guys went from where we to from where? Eight to nine or nine to 10. Eight to nine. You went from 10 to 16. And you, 10 to 16. Yeah. You moved up. You went from 10 to nine. No, we dropped. Okay. So I, I'm just saying, I, I come on. It was Texas Tech. They almost lost yeah, but, to Houston Baptist. Let's just say that the week before. Let's just stipulate though that there's a lot of bias in those preseason polls anyway. Like, look at everything that LSU <laughs> lost 
their defensive coordinator. Um, they lost their passing game coordinator, right? Joe Brady was he, he left, didn't he? Correct. Yeah, he's they lost their Heisman quarterback. They lost like eighteen starters, and they were still ranked top five going into the season. Anyone who thought that LSU was going to be the exact same team that they were last year was crazy, but they still had a high rank. That's the Edo mania, right? Like LSU fans just believe in Ed. He's one of them. It's, you know, it's, he's one of them. It's just the Kool-Aid they drink every day. So uh, one of my favorite um, uh, memes of the week last week was the fight between Ed O and the closed captioning system. <laughs> at his news conferences. (laughs) That was really funny. It came across my feed. So anyways, guys, well, Hey, we appreciate you tuning in to Zach cast this week. Uh, Glad we could kind of do a lightning round, talk about a few topics and uh, get our thoughts out there. Chad, I appreciate it, man. Thanks for taking the time to hang out with me. Absolutely. Hey, before we let you go, we referenced it in the episode here, but uh, if you are not subscribed to the Zach tax roundup, it's our new newsletter. It's open to anyone. You do not have to be a user of Zach tax. Uh, check the show notes. Uh, we just published, I think yesterday, the September issue on storytelling and how you can use storytelling to improve your management, improve your, your culture development in your organization. Uh, had a lot of good responses to that, to that uh, issue. So definitely, if you're interested in all things local government, we don't just talk about sales tax, kind of like this podcast. We use it for a, like a long form um, getting ideas out of our head. So if that kind of stuff interests you, then absolutely take a look at it. And uh, good talking to you, Pat. Good talking, guys. We'll see you next time.